Brilliant. All right, Acts 27. Acts 27. We're going to read, <coughs> and then we're going to dive in and see um, and have a look at what we can gain from it. All right, Acts 27. All right, I'm going to be reading. I'm going to read reading from the NIV. Um, I normally use the ESV, but um, these narratives read better with the NIV. So I'm going to be reading from the NIV. All right, you guys ready? It's a lengthy passage. Let's get into it. It's beautiful. All right. When it was decided that we would sail for Italy, Paul and some other prisoners were handed over to a centurion named Julius, who belonged to the Imperial Regiment. We boarded a ship from Adramatian, about to sail for ports along the coast of the province of Asia, and we put out to sea. Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica, was with us. The next day we landed at Sidon, and Julius, in kindness to Paul, allowed him to go to his friends so that they might provide for his needs. From there we put out to sea again and passed out to the lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. When we had sailed across the open sea off the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we landed at Myra in Lycia. There the centurion found an Alexandrian ship sailing for Italy and put us on board. We made slow headway for many days and had difficulty arriving off Snidus. When the wind did not allow us to hold our course, we sailed to the lee of Crete opposite Salmoni. We moved along the coast with difficulty and came to a place called Fair Havens near the town of Lacia. I love that name, Fair Havens. I want to go there. All right, verse 9. Much time had been lost and sailing had already become dangerous because by now it was after the Day of Atonement. So Paul warned them. Men, I can see that our voyage is going to be disastrous and bring great loss to ship and cargo and to our own lives also. But the centurion, instead of listening to Paul, said, um, to what Paul said, followed the advice of the pilot and of the owner of the ship. Since the harbor was unsuitable to winter in, the majority decided that we should sail on, hoping to reach Phoenix and winter there. This was a harbor in Crete, facing both southwest and northwest. When a gentle south wind began to blow, they saw their opportunity. So they weighed anchor and sailed along the shore of Crete. Before very long, a wind of hurricane force called the Northeaster swept down from the island. The ship was caught by the storm and could not head into the sea, so we gave, a, we gave way to it and were driven along. As we passed to the lee of a small island called Quada, we, we were hardly able to make the lifeboat secure, so the men hoisted it aboard. Then they passed ropes under the ship itself to hold it together because they were afraid they would run around aground on the sandbars of the citrus. They lowered the sea anchor and let the ship be driven along. We took such a violent battering from the storm that the next day they began to throw the cargo overboard. On the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and the storm continued raging, we finally gave up all hope of being saved. Verse 21. After they had gone a long time without food, Paul stood up before them and said, Men, 
You should have taken my advice not to sell from Crete. Then you would have spared yourselves this damage and loss. But now I urge you to keep up your courage because not one of you will be lost. Only the ship will be destroyed. Last night, an angel of, of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve stood beside me and said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar, and God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. So keep up your courage, men, for I have faith in God that it will happen just as he told me. Nevertheless, we must run aground on some island. Verse 27. On the 14th night, we still, being driven across the Adriatic Sea, when about midnight, the sailors sensed they were approaching land. They took soundings and found that the water was 120 feet deep. A short time later, they took soundings again and found it was 90 feet deep. Fearing that we would be dashed against the rocks, they dropped four anchors from the stern and prayed for daylight. In an attempt to escape from the ship, the sailors let the lifeboat down into the sea, pretending they were going to lower some anchors from the boat. Then Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay with the ship, you cannot be saved. So the soldiers cut the ropes that held the lifeboat and let it drift away. Verse 33. Just before dawn, Paul urged them all to eat. For the last 14 days, he said, you have been in constant suspense and have gone without food. You haven't eaten anything. Now I urge you to take some food. You need it to survive. Not one of you will lose a single hair from his head. After he said this, he took some bread and gave thanks to God in front of them all. Then he broke it and began to eat. They were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. Altogether, there were 276 of us on board. When they had eaten as much as they wanted, they lightened the ship by throwing the grain into the sea. When daylight came, they did not recognize the land, but they saw a bay with a sandy beach where they decided to run the ship aground if they could. Cutting loose the anchors, they left them in the sea and at the same time untied the ropes that held the rudders. Then they hoisted the foresail to the wind and made for the beach. But the ship struck a sandbar and ran aground. The bow struck fast and would not move, and the stern was broken to pieces by the pounding of the surf. The soldiers planned to kill the prisoners to, protect, to, pre to prevent any of them from swimming away and escaping. But the centurion wanted to spare Paul's life and kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and get to land. The rest were to get there on planks or on other pieces of the ship. In this way, everyone reached land safely. Wow, wow, wow. This is God's word. Let's pray and see what we can discover from it. God, thank you for this amazing story. I pray that you would use it not just to help us know you more and how you relate to us, but may you use it to change us. In Jesus' name we pray.
Amen. Amen. In approximately um, 60 AD, a ship carrying 276 men and a cargo of grain left the port of Caesarea. The Apostle Paul was one of the passengers on this ship. He was a prisoner heading to Rome. He was accompanied by his friend Luke. Luke was not only a faithful Christian, a trusted historian, and a medical professional. He's also the journalist behind this story we just read in the entire book of Acts. One of the unique things about this particular story is that Luke writes it in first person plural using the pronoun we. This is important because it indicates that Luke participated in the events he is describing. Okay? He was an eyewitness of these events. What does this all mean? This means that this account we've just read and we're going to be studying is based on actual historic events. Okay? It's not made up. Um, it's not um, his creative ideas on how this may have happened. We're going to read, and we've just read it. And if you notice, it's great. The details are very potent indeed. It's a real historical account. And so from this epic voyage in the book of Acts, we're going to make some observations and draw out some implications. And we're going to be using scenes to do it, okay? We're going to have the first scene, which is um, our duty to warn, then the second scene, amazing grace on display, and then the third scene will be God is faithful to his promises, all right? So scene one, if you're making notes, is our duty to warn, our duty to warn. If you remember last week, if you weren't here, go on our website, it's on our podcast shameless plug, whatever, Festus, who was the Roman governor of Caesarea, um, had failed to reach a verdict on Paul's case. And because of this, he had to send Paul to Rome um, so his case can be heard and judged by Caesar. Look at verse 1 again. It says, when it was decided that we would sail for Italy... Paul and some other prisoners were handed over to a centurion named Julius who belonged to the imperial regiment. And so Paul and the prisoners were under the guard and watchful eye of a Roman officer named Julius. Okay, we don't know much about Julius, but what we do know about him is that he's a member of an imperial regiment. Sounds like a fancy officer, high-up commander thing, okay? He's a member of it. And he's also got the daunting task of getting these prisoners to Rome safely. Look at verse 3. The next day, we landed at Sidon, and Julius, in kindness to Paul, allowed him to go to his friends so they might provide for his needs, all right? In Sidon, Julius was very kind to Paul, 
he allowed him to visit with friends in the city so that they can provide for his needs. And it's highly likely that these friends Paul was allowed to visit are Christians, are followers of Jesus. And this is amazing to me, and I can relate to this because my wife and I, we've traveled a lot, and we've lived in different cities and different places. And one thing we've realized that as Christians, as followers of Jesus, you can go anywhere and you'll be able to connect and find other Christians that love Jesus the way you love Jesus and are willing to welcome you into their homes and serve you. And I'm sure some of you have experienced the same thing. Okay? So, from Sidon, this is what happened. They continued their journey along the coast of Asia. The western winds that blow during the summer months made it difficult to keep the ship on course. But thankfully, they were still able to make it to their next step, which is Myra. Look at verse 6. In Myra, it says, the centurion found an Alexandrian ship sailing for Italy and put us on board. And so when they got to Myra, what happened? They transferred ships, okay, and boarded a ship that had come from Alexandria that was going to Italy, all right? And so after leaving Myra, things began to get really interesting. Weather conditions became progressively worse. But despite the worsening weather conditions and the heavy winds blowing against their ship, they were able to make it safely to Fair Havens. That's the place I want to go. Okay? I want to go there. Okay? Which was a town on the island of Crete. And so while they're in Fair Havens, this is what they realize. They realize that their voyage to Rome and Italy, Italy is taking longer than expected. They're delayed. They're behind on schedule. And so despite sea travel being extremely dangerous this time of year, the sailors didn't want to delay anymore, so they just said, look, regardless of how the um, weather is, we're just going to keep powering on and sailing on. But Paul, the apostle, who was a seasoned traveler, felt it was not safe to continue, so he gathered the sailors, and he warned them in this way. Look at verse 10. Men, I can see that our voyage is going to be disastrous. Wow. He's not optimistic, is he? He's being honest. It's going to be disastrous. <laughs> and bring loss to ship and cargo and to our own lives also. In other words, men, if we keep going in these weather conditions, we're going to suffer for it. Cargo will be lost, men will die, because this is not the safe season to sail. Unfortunately, they don't listen to Paul, they reject his advice. Look at verse 11, but the centurion, instead of listening to what Paul said, followed the advice of the pilot and of the owner of the ship. And it makes sense, because Paul is a prisoner. Why do I want to listen to this guy? What does he know about sailing? I'm going to listen to the captain of the ship, and I'm going to listen to the owner of the ship. They know what's up. Why did the centurion reject Paul's advice? Look at verse 12. 
Since the harbor was unsuitable to winter in, the majority decided that we should sail on, hoping to reach Phoenix and winter there. This was a harbor in Crete, facing both southwest and northeast. And so they're very much like, look, Fair Havens, even though the name sounds awesome, is not the most suitable place to hang out and harbor for the winter. What we need to do is that we need to keep going, all right? And in about 40 miles, we're going to be in Phoenix. And when we're in Phoenix, Phoenix is a great place for us to harbor and winter there. And so the crew, the soldiers, the prisoners, and Julius the centurion readied the ship, raised their anchors, and set sail for Phoenix. They should have listened to Paul and remained in Fair Havens because not long after setting sail, the sea began to reveal its gruesome nature. A hurricane known as the Northeaster swept down from the northeast, slammed into the ship, and drove it into the eye of a storm. Look at verse 15. The ship was caught by the storm and could not head into the wind. So we gave way to it and were driven along um, with the wind. And so, wow, this ship is in this eye of the storm. The storm is just tossing it here and then. They're trying to get the ship under control, but they haven't been able to. And so they just give in to what? The storm wants to do with the ship. Back in Fair Havens, Paul knew that if they kept going and didn't remain there for the winter, they would encounter danger. He knew that sailing um, at this time of year was dangerous. And so, he didn't remain silent. What did he do? He warned them of the possible dangerous weather conditions ahead. As Christians, if you are here and you are a Jesus follower, we have a similar duty. We have a duty to warn. Now... <laughs> I know for sure there were probably two different responses to what I just said. Some of you heard this whole calling a responsibility of Christians um, to warn, and you perked up. You got very excited, and you want to hear more. The concept of warning people is good news to you, okay? You, you like that. But for some of you, the statement, we have a duty to warn, made you uncomfortable because you're probably, your personality, you're non-confrontational as a person. But there are certain things we're called to that we might not be comfortable with all the time. And one of them it's the duty to warn. As followers of Jesus, we have the responsibility to warn. Whenever we see someone heading towards a dangerous situation, 
it's our duty to warn them. It's our duty to say to them, hey, where you're going, what you're doing, what you're involved in is not going to go well for you. It's going to, uh, you're going to be led into trouble. What or who in your life do you need to lovingly admonish, rebuke, and warn? Writer and biblical counselor Donna Reedland helps us with this theme, and um, he, she helps us with to motivate us with this illustration. She says this: If you saw someone, even a stranger, who was about to drive over a cliff, you would do whatever you could to stop that person. Most of us have friends, relatives, and co-workers who are going over a cliff spiritually, relationally, and in other ways. Yet, we tell ourselves we shouldn't get involved, or we comfort ourselves by saying we have no right to judge. Lovingly admonishing, rebuking, and warning others is our duty as Christians. It's a responsibility God has given us. Before we move on, I want to do this. I want to think through this question, okay, and this th through this concept um, from a different perspective. And this is it. I want to be able to practice, okay, what we're talking about now with this question. And the question is, what are you doing? What are you involved in? What are you planning on doing that could potentially have a negative impact on your spiritual well-being? What are you doing? What are you involved in that you've been warned about that you know, you know, you're going to end up in trouble or whatever that you're still continuing to do? May you this morning heed this warning and may you this morning decide to listen to godly and trustworthy counsel. That was scene one, our duty to warn. Now let's turn our attention to scene two, grace on display. Grace on display. Look at verses 18 and 19. So Luke continues. He says, We took such a violent battering from the storm that the next day they began to throw the cargo overboard. Verse 19. On the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. <laughs> as gale force winds and waves continued to batter the ship, and as the ship was driving hard into the open ocean, everyone on the ship had turned their attention to, um, from sailing to surviving. So what the crew decided to do was grab whatever they could, cargo, 
equipment and begin to throw it overboard. Why were they doing that? They were doing that to lighten the ship so that the ship can endure the storm. And this was a crazy decision, if you think about it, right? Because the whole point of the voyage to Italy was to make money from the cargo, okay? And uh, also for the ship to sail efficiently, okay, they needed some of these equipment. But they were willing to get rid of their most valuable possessions and equipment in order to survive. And this is fascinating, isn't it? I love this because it's reminding us that we, when, when the rubber meets the road, when we need to survive, we are willing to do whatever it takes to survive and make things happen. They were willing to do whatever it takes to survive. Unfortunately, as we've read, this strategy was useless. It didn't work. The storm continued its relentless assault on the ship and the passengers. And so with the storm showing no sign of stopping, every passenger on the ship began fearing for the worst possible outcome. Look at verse 20. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and the storm continued raging, we finally gave up all hope of being saved. The sea remained violent. As bad as that was, right, the sky became overcast, right? It was day, it was night. They didn't know the difference because the overcast had blocked everything out. The crew lost their bearings and couldn't get the ship under control. They had done everything they could to survive, but nothing worked. And so, overwhelmed with fear, everyone on the ship gave up all hope or hope of being saved. I'm sure in a room of this size, there are people here who know what this is like. And I'm not talking about being on a ship in a storm. Maybe you have, <laughs> but probably not. But I'm sure in a room of this size, there are people here who know what it's like to feel hopeless. To be in a situation where you feel hopeless. Look at verse 20. When neither sun, look at verse 20 again. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and the storm continued raging, we finally gave up all hope of being saved. They were done. Or hope was lost. But when hope was lost was when the Apostle Paul spoke words that began to revive hope in the hearts of everyone on that ship. Verse 21. After they had gone a long time without food, Paul stood up before them and said, Men, you should have taken my advice not to sail from Crete. Then you, would, you, then you would have spared yourselves this danger, this damage, and loss. Right? Paul's basically like, I told you so. <laughs> right? You should have listened to me. 
Should have used him to me. But his goal wasn't at all to tell them he was right, but to, but to bring them good news. Look at verse 22. But now I urge you to keep up your courage, because not one of you will be lost. Only the ship will be destroyed. Paul is super confident that no one's going to die. And the only thing that's going to be destroyed is the ship. Why was Paul confident in this? Look at verse 23 to 25. Last night, an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve stood beside me and said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar and God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. Look at verse 25. So keep up your courage, men, for I have faith in God that it will happen just as he told me. There's so much in there. So much in there. God sent an angelic messenger to Paul to bring good news when all hope was lost for the 200-plus messengers on this ship. And the interesting thing, the interesting thing about all of this is that they're in this situation is because of the bad decision they made. They were in this life-threatening situation because of an unwise decision. Okay, okay, they should have listened to Paul. They should not have sailed, right, but remained in fair havens. But they decided to, even though it was dangerous. And so the dire situation they found themselves in was self-inflicted. It was their fault. But despite the messy and dangerous situation they found themselves in, because of their bad choices, God did not abandon them. He didn't give up on them. He didn't cross his arms and say, you should have listened to Paul. Should have listened to Paul. You got yourself in this mess now get yourself out. God didn't leave them to wallow in their failures. Instead, God sent an angelic messenger to Paul so that he could bring good news, not only to Paul and affirm that Paul's going to be all right, but this good news was for every single person, passenger on this ship. In a similar way, we will, because we're broken and because we're sinners and because we're imperfect, we will fail miserably. Can I get a witness? And we will find ourselves suffering the pain 
of our consequences for our bad decisions. Our sinful actions will bring about devastating consequences. But the most mind-blowing, the most joyous, and the most precious truth in all of this is that when we find ourselves suffering the consequences of our stupid, sinful decisions, this is exactly when God's grace shines the brightest. God loves the unlovable. God is faithful to the unfaithful. God provides hope for the hopeless. And God revives those who have failed miserably. In short, God always gives us what we don't deserve. Amen? Dane Ortland, who wrote an awesome book, for gentle and lowly has this to say. Time and time again, it is the morally disgusting, the socially reviled, the inexcusable and undeserving who do not simply receive Christ's mercy, but to whom Christ most naturally gravitates. He is the friend of sinners. Have you failed miserably? Are you suffering the consequences and the effects of your bad decisions? If you are, and if you don't, you will, let me remind you of this, that God moves towards heals and forgives those who least deserve it. That's amazing. That was scene two, grace on display. Now let's look at the last and final scene, scene three, which is faithful to his promise, faithful to his promise. Look at verse 27. On the 14th night, we were still being driven across the Adriatic Sea when about midnight, the sailors sensed they were approaching lands. And so for two weeks, right? For two weeks, these guys have been in a ridiculously devastating um, storm. But about midnight, on the 14th night, the sailors heard waves crashing on a shore and sensed that they were approaching land. They had been in constant suspense for 14 days straight, and because of this, they had not eaten anything. Okay, think about it. It's just crazy. You're like 14 days. No, of course, they've been in suspense. But also, if you've ever been on a boat or anything like that, seasickness is devilish it's horrible and when you have seasickness it's 
hard. You just don't want to eat anything. And so they're struggling with all of these things, and they haven't eaten for, um, uh, for 14 days. And so what happens is that Paul, again, stands up and encourages them to eat something. He also reassured them of the protection promised by God. Look at verse 34. Now I urge you to take some food. You need it to survive. Not one of you will lose a single hair from his head. Basically, he's reminding them, like, gosh, this situation is dire, but none of you are going to die from this. Look at verse 39. When daylight came, they did not recognize the land, but they saw a bay with a sandy beach where they decided to run the ship aground um, if they could. And just when they were making progress in all of this, look at verse 41. But the ship struck a sandbar and ran aground. The bow stuck fast and would not move, and the stern was broken to pieces by the pounding of the sea. And so they were shipwrecked. That's what's going on there. And, and so as the ship began to um, 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 sink and fall apart, everyone on the ship um, jumped overboard and began to swim for land. <laughs> I'm reading this, and I'm like, this is crazy. So you get the picture. Ship is falling apart. It's sinking, and they have to swim to the shore. I don't know how far it was, but they had to swim. I was thinking to myself, if I was on that ship, I can't swim, okay? What would happen to me? I don't know, but apparently... 44 is helpful. The rest were to get there on planks. <laughs> that would be me, the rest, getting there on planks. Give me that plank. Give me it. Or other pieces of the ship. I'll grab the biggest piece possible, right? In this way, everyone reached land safely. Every passenger on the ship survived the merciless sea voyage and found safety on an island. Dennis E. Johnson, who's a pastor and author, says this, Yet through dangers from the sea, sailors, soldiers, and shipwreck, Paul's faithful God carried him and everyone to safety on an unknown shore, Paul's confidence that God would prove true to his word was fully vindicated. God had given Paul a specific promise that he would reach Rome. Despite this crazy voyage, God continued to fulfill his promise to Paul. This is the interesting thing about Christianity. All right? And what we're reading here. God doesn't always promise rescue and survival in dangerous situations. Okay? I don't want us to read this and think, well, yeah, I'm going to get on a ship and whatever happens, happens. Okay? I'm going to survive. God doesn't always promise that we will survive in dangerous situations, but this is what he promises, that he will always fulfill his promises to us, okay? Christians do not always survive storms 
at sea or shipwrecks or survive any dire situation they find themselves in, but Christians can rest assured that God's control over history, seen here in poor surviving the storm, is a reality we can expect in our lives. God will fulfill his promises. He absolutely will. And if you've been a Christian for a while and you know your Bible a little bit, there are certain promises that you know for sure are for you. God has promised them and he will fulfill them. One of the promises that God has promised me and every other Christian is this, okay? If, right, if we are anxious about anything, this is what God has promised. God has promised that if we come to him, okay, he will eventually allow his peace that doesn't make sense to be ours, okay? God has also promised us and invites us to approach the throne of grace. That is, God has promised to always hear us whenever we engage with him in prayer. Also, God has promised to forgive our sins when we candidly and truthfully come to him and ask for forgiveness. There are so many promises. Another awesome promise is that God has promised that he'll never leave us or forsake us. He will always be with us. No matter what happens in your life, as a believer, you can rest assured that even though you may find yourself in a stormy situation, you can have the courage to face it because of this. In all things, God works for the good of those who love him. He absolutely does. Let's pray. God, you are good. And we are thankful for the many ways, for the many ways that you speak to us. Thank you for reminding us this morning of our responsibility um, to warn others. And thank you for reminding us of how amazing your grace is. That even if we mess up, you don't give up on us, but you continue um, to pursue us and provide hope for us, even when we're hopeless. And God, thank you that you fulfill all your promises. You just do. It's simple. These truths are obvious to us, but God, I pray that they would become a reality in our lives and that they would shape the way we think about you and shape the way we live our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So this is what...